2022 was a devastating year for our planet. From floods in Pakistan that affected over 33 million people, to unprecedented droughts in East Africa, which likewise impacted tens of millions, the violent forces of climate change were on full display. It's little wonder why, in March 2023, through their sixth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, noted with urgency that climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses, and going further to note that the extent and magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in previous assessments. Even with notable progress being made in tackling climate change and with various adaptive measures being legislated to help vulnerable communities, the world still finds itself in the position of not doing enough. The impacts of climate change are here. They are undeniable and upending. Over our six episodes in Climate Change, America and the World, the LSE Phelan U.S. Center will bring together expert analysis on the far-ranging impacts of climate change. Our approach is to be diverse in our consideration of how climate change is felt by different people in different places. Although we are bringing to the fore America's own responsibility and response to one of the greatest challenges of our time, the series is not only about America, it's about America and the world. In the last episode, we examined the relationship between the global north and south and their experiences of climate change and how we can combat it. One of the areas where this differentiated experience was felt was in the forced movement of people by both climate disasters and the longer-term residual effects of climate change. In this episode of the series, we analyze this relationship. Migration has been a hot-button issue in the United States and much of the developed world in recent years, but often the reasons why people are moving is not fully explicated. We just accept that they are. It's also important to note that while we often think of migration as consisting of people moving from one country to another, a 2018 report from the World Bank noted that absent significant mitigation efforts, around 143 million people could be displaced internally by 2050. What is the connection between climate change and human migration? Is this connection overemphasized or does climate change play a major role in displacing people? And if it does, how? And what can be done by the United States from both international and domestic perspectives to alleviate the conditions that produce migrants from Latin America? To begin to unpack these questions and more, we are joined by two speakers. Dr. Susanna Beatrice Adamo is an adjunct professor at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Her research interests center around environmental displacement and the role of internal migration in developing countries. Dr. Sarah Bermeo is an associate professor of public policy and political science in the Sanford School at Duke University. Dr. Bermeo analyzes the role of foreign aid in international development, the causes for human migration, and how climate finance is used by developed states in self-interested ways. By bringing Dr. Adamo's and Dr. Bermeo's expertise together, this episode will look to interrogate the link between climate change and migration. One of the foundational problems with analyzing the relationship between climate change and migration is the difficulty that comes with disentangling the complicated webs within which migration occurs. Although this complexity is important to acknowledge, it can make it difficult for policymakers to identify solutions, which ultimately can lead to ineffective policy. Within her field of work, Dr. Adamo has encountered this problem. 
I am a demographer. So I am approaching this as a demographer. Uh, migration is very difficult to study when you try to do aggregated studies because it's very difficult to have good data on that. In terms of the reasons, that's also very much debated. What there is a general agreement is that there are many different reasons and not a single one is going to explain the movement. There's multiple reasons why people move. And for the policymaker, that's not a good response because complexity and interdisciplinarity could be good for academia, but it doesn't provide policymakers a clear path of how to address the issue. In terms of the climate change and mass migration, that depends how you define, define mass migration. When I read your question, I was thinking in terms of the mass migration from Europeans to America at the beginning of the 20th century, for example. So after the fact, that was called the mass migration because you can see the number, the millions of people moving from Europe to every single country in, in the America, from North America, Central America, Latin America. So in that sense, the, there is like a general consensus that climate change is probably not going to be behind mass migration, but also there is growing concern is it could be either a trigger in certain situation, a multiplier in others. Another event related to climate change could trigger migration. In terms of the mass migration, that's more difficult to say. You can have very large movement because of disaster, and, and that's something that you can see now. But usually, those populations are back after a while. So that the mass migration depends what type of migration you're talking about. People moving permanently, people moving more temporarily because of the displacement or what happened in, when you have hurricanes and flooding. And those are a different kind of movement. Dr. Adamo has emphasized the importance of scrutinizing the specific case of migration in question, whether it is mass migration or not, and whether the form of migration is temporary or permanent. By complicating the issue, we might be able to address these problems more effectively. Like with many social phenomena, there are always various political, economic, and historical forces interacting with one another that help to create the conditions we then see. Dr. Sarah Bermeo asks us to consider a variety of complicating factors that make it difficult to discern the effects of climate change on migration. I think it will never be completely possible to disentangle climate change from other reasons for migration because people might leave their home for climate change, but they leave their country for other reasons. And survey research has actually been not particularly great at disentangling this because you ask people, well, why did you leave? Well, we left because I, I left because I wanted a, a job. Right. Well, but they might not find out that you left because you wanted a job because your farm failed for three years. And so you actually were it was a climate related reason. But the thing most on your mind when somebody says, why did you leave and come to the United States? You say, I wanted a job because that is why you left and came to the United States. So it's difficult to disentangle. What would you have in, in the migrants from Central America to the United States is that the actual impact of climate change could be very small directly. And, and that's coming from surveys on from different studies. And the direct impact, I would say that is quite small. It's of course more evident when you have hurricanes, but then you need to also consider what is the indirect impact that could have because it's affecting subsistence agriculture. And so people don't have enough resources to stay in place or they're threatened because of 
uh, food insecurity. But then you have to wonder what are the resources that this population has to actually be able to cross. Could it be higher in the future? Yes, it could. But I would say that violence and general lack of resources in their own country could be more determinant than one single impact of climate change. But if you consider the climate change as a general background situation, as a multiplier, a trigger, that could be a higher impact. Although it is easy to think of climate change-induced migration when a catastrophe occurs, the more implicit ways in which climate change can affect people's livelihoods makes it more difficult to truly appreciate its role in migration. Dr. Bermeo examines the movement of people from Guatemala and Honduras to the United States to further highlight this complexity. Some of the research that we have done was able to look at subnational um, migration. So between 2012 and 2019, what we saw was, well, there's definitely people coming from those very violent city areas. There's also huge proportions of people coming from rural departments. And in a couple of cases in Guatemala and Honduras, when you look at the population of a department in 2011, more than 7% of the population of that department came to the showed up at the United States southern border between the years of 2012 and 2019 in a way that they were counted. So that's a vast undercount of who left because some people left and resettled in their own country. Some people left and went to Mexico. Some people came to the United States and might not have been counted, but it was 7% of the population of some of these departments. There was a big impact of dry growing seasons on years when people would leave. And in particular, following the 2018 drought, 2018, 2019 saw huge, the way I describe it is it's almost like looking at a COVID curve, asymptotic increases in the number of people arriving at the U.S. southern border from Honduras and Guatemala as part of family units, which means they were traveling as families. They're not, it's not the traditional type of migration that we have seen historically where one member of the family leaves, gets a job, saves up money, maybe tries to bring other members of their family over or else, you know, sends money back home through remittances. This was whole families or at least, you know, parents with children showing up at the U.S. southern border in really unprecedented numbers from these countries. And what we can't pinpoint and say, well, this is definitely due, and this is all pre-COVID, so it's not due to COVID. We can't say this is definitely due to climate change. Um, we can say that the departments that saw the, the worst impacts on their growing seasons, that does have a great, that that did result in, on average, more people from that department showing up in family units at the U.S. southern border. And that's kind of as close as we can get to, to saying, um, you know, okay, well, we see when things get bad, Climate-wise, in a department, and, and it affects your food security, you are more likely to migrate with your family to the United States. Although we may not often conceptualize many scenarios as being indicators of climate-induced migration, but perhaps just instead as economic realities, climate change can operate as the precursor to these more economically framed issues. There is also an interesting intersection between needing to leave your local region because of climate change, but having to move beyond your country's borders because of other structural issues. These two forces then, climate change and some form of political instability or economic problems, 
interact in ways that help create external migration. What's important to note, however, is that although people who move internally do not leave the borders of their country, their experiences of displacement can be just as difficult, dislocating, and fraught with feelings of insecurity. In Central America, external migration to the United States is long established, and so for many years, this has been a pathway for quite a few migrants. As more barriers, however, are erected, this type of external migration becomes more difficult. Although this may prevent the full journey of one's migration, it does not address the reasons for why people are moving in the first place. If you look at the countries in Central America, for example, they have a very long history of migration to the United States, mostly. Some regional, but a lot of migration to the United States as part of their migration system. So in that case, the trigger could be the same. What is different is the destination. So the question is, what makes people to decide to go to one place or another? And, and I think that in that case, the, the pull factor could be different. If you have barriers to cross border migration, that's probably going to be a deterrent. And if you look at, this, at the, the situation right now in the southern borders of the United States, there are more and more physical barriers and institutional barriers in terms of laws and rules that make it more difficult to cross. I do think it's important to note there are two very important external factors besides climate change that are contributing to the violence and the unlivable conditions in these countries. And one of them is the transnational criminal organizations that are trafficking drugs from South America, particularly, though not exclusively, from Colombia into the North American market. As transit points, they were subject to all of the violence and corruption that comes along with having transnational criminal organizations um, operating in your country. And so that there really is this kind of responsibility of external actors for the violence that is going on in the countries. The other thing that people aren't really talking about anymore is the shipping of weapons illegally south from the uh, from the U.S. border down through Mexico into Central America. So all of those weapons that are killing people that have made Honduras and El Salvador at different times the murder capitals of the world are being are either left from Cold War time or are being trafficked in. And most of that trafficking is coming from the United States across the um, U.S.-Mexico border. And so the contribution, the external contributions to violence are increasing the violence in the country, which is then interacting with climate-related reasons for people leaving their homes. By first defining the different forms of migration that may occur, from internal to external, from temporary to permanent, and then by underlining the way climate change interacts with other structural phenomena, examples of climate-induced migration become more clarified. In episode one of Climate Change, America and the World, we explained how climate change materially means different things for different people and different countries. And a lot of this depends on whether they're relatively rich or relatively poor. In the case of migration, we again begin to see the very specific ways climate change impacts developing countries and then spills over into the developed world as well. Migration is not only a result of natural catastrophe, but can also occur through a more gradual deterioration of a nation's economy. When this occurs, it's often the poorest and most vulnerable that find themselves in need of a new home. Climate change could affect a country depending on what kind of development the country is having. 
a country that is heavily based on agriculture, for example, the commodities exports, uh, is very vulnerable to changes in climate. How much of the GDP is based on agriculture? What are the alternatives that the country have? And uh, how much that could impact the future? That's been studied and, and it's, it's quite well known. However, depending on the impact you're talking about, it could also be the impact on infrastructure, also affecting development. That could be the case of hurricanes. Hurricanes affecting a number of different facilities, a number of transportation uh, means. So all that is affecting development in one way or another. Climate change also affects the labor force. So the ILO has more and more studies showing how labor productivity could be affected by climate change, particularly by in changes in temperature going into uh, extreme temperature heat, extreme heat in some days that could affect uh, productivity. And that also affect a country's development and in addition to affect the health of, uh, of the population. All of these could affect elements, say disasters, long-term impacts on GDP, terms on different activities, terms on uh, uh, impacts on health, of the labor force, health of the population that results in an increasing part of the GDP that has to do with uh, care facilities and so on. One of the key factors is not just the reliance on like what percentage of, is agriculture of GDP or of exports or something like that. It's the way that agriculture is carried out. So within Central America, but also within many low and middle income countries around the world, the majority of agriculture is small scale agriculture which has a, a big impact in how you think about responding to it, um, how you think about responding to the climate impacts on agriculture. So if you're talking about you know, big businesses like we have in the US or they have in Europe where agriculture is um, primarily done by, a, a, you know, by big firms and by big farms that may, might make up 90, 95% of the agricultural market, um, you're talking in, you know, in developing countries, including in Central America, where the majority of agriculture might be made up of by small scale farmers that um, that farm less than, you know, two hectares of land apiece. And so the way that you think about rolling new agriculture techniques out to people who are, you know, who are on the front line of this, who are producing the majority of the food supply in some in, you know, in many developing countries um, is very different than you think about responding to the intersection of climate change and agriculture in places like the U.S. or Europe. And then that's something that I, I think international aid agencies haven't really grappled with. How do you respond when the frontline implementers are hundreds of millions, I'm talking worldwide, not just Central America, but hundreds of millions of small scale farmers, as opposed to just being able to target um, you know, lar large scale, large scale production. And I think that is creating a challenge. It's also, of course, on the food security side, creating a challenge because many of these people are subsistence farmers who rely in part or in, uh, um, in whole for their dietary needs on what they grow on their own land. And so that is, of course, very different than, say, agribusiness in the U.S. or Europe, where most people are not, it's not subsistence farming, it's farming um, for as a business. From impacting a country's primary export to affecting the labor health and productivity of the population, climate change can influence a country's development in multiple ways. What Dr. Adamo's and Dr. Bermeo's insights help to underscore is the fact that these scenarios might be overlooked because 
our conceptualization can at times render us to think of it at its absolute worst, from devastating hurricanes to inescapable floods. But of course, climate change is more than the catastrophic, and its effects, when felt in the long term, can be rather deceptive. The forced movement of people also carries with it the added quality of affecting the resources of the area experiencing the new influx of people. If there is a huge catastrophe, there is a disaster, and a lot of the population is moving to a certain area, even if, if then they move back, that implies that there are going to be a strain on the resources in that particular area. From a population that is very much at risk, and have very little resources because of the way they move. In that case, that could be a problem. And sudden influx of migrants because of climate impacts uh, could affect the resources of cities. What is detrimental is when a lot of people move in very dark circumstances, when they have very little control over how they can move, what kind of resources they can take with them, and, and where where to go. And that's a strain on the people on the move, on the people that is left behind because they cannot move for some reason, but also on the receiving community because their resources could be um, not enough for everybody. There are several analyses of that. The, the, the recent very large movement of Puerto Ricans to the uh, continental United States because of Maria and Irma, a lot of them are bad, but for a while that was a very complicated situation. I, I think that is the southern characteristic of that. If you can have something that is more distributed over time, that gives places of reception time to, to adapt, and the government time to put things in place to help those communities, that could be, could be better. How does the often sudden characteristic of migration interact with the system of migration from Central America to the United States? And does the current system further complicate an already troubling scenario? There's this idea in the United States, very widely held, but that um, Central American migrants should um, just kind of wait in line for legal migration opportunities. And one of the things that I think the United States, but many, many countries that are likely to become destinations for climate-related migrants need to think about is how the allocation for legal migration you know, pathways is allocated across countries. So only a couple of thousand people from Central America per year at most are eligible to come to the United States legally. And hundreds of thousands show up at the border. So clearly there needs to be a rethinking of how do we how do we think about allocating migration, you know, legal migration um, pathways across the demand from countries, particularly as climate change becomes a bigger reason for why people want to, to leave. Should that be factored into which countries are being allocated spots to um, you know to migrate legally um, to the countries? And so far, that's not been done. And I do think if we if we want to be serious about the fact that people are going to need to move for climate change, that we need to think about are there legal mechanisms that can be put in place that will allow people to move in a way that can be beneficial to both the the um, sending and the receiving countries. 
Dr. Adamo noted earlier that the pace of migration plays a crucial role in how effectively the receiving country can absorb and support the displaced population. This remains true to both internal and external forms of migration. This fact, in combination with what Dr. Bermeo argues to be an ineffective system of migration allocation in the United States and globally, means that climate migrants find themselves in a position of immense insecurity and chaos, even beyond the fact that they've had to leave and travel miles and miles from their original starting point. The effects of the haphazard nature of climate-induced migration are not only felt, however, in a social or political manner. Indeed, when we consider this conversation in environmental terms, migration means movement to new ecosystems. Can, therefore, migration contribute to further environmental decay? And if so, how? So the movement to sensitive ecosystems could exacerbate the deterioration of these systems. But my question to that, and I'm sorry to answer with the question, is why would people move there if they don't have opportunities? People are moving to certain areas because there are more opportunities there. Now, moving to a city, particularly a city that is quite large, means that there are many different places. And the reason, in general, because the migrant population, and this is particularly migrants that do not have enough resources, is because there are no other places where they can live. The real estate market being what it is, areas that are dangerous, not very well suitable for occupation, for settlements, are the areas where you usually had informal settlements. Uh, wetlands, for example, under protection or not under protection, but because they are um, they're cheaper, that's usually when, where you have these, these uh, populations. That creates a problem for the city because those wetlands could have a particular uh, role in regulating the hydrology of the city, or it could, and also it's very dangerous for the population because they are exposed to flooding and everything that has to do with that. And also because if the cities are not prepared for that, they may not have the resources to help migrants to integrate, to assimilate, and to actually make a living in the city. Um, if you don't have enough for infrastructure, transportation, people are going to move where, closer to where the, the center of the city is, that creates overpopulation in a particular area. So there are many different situations that you can have why um, people moving into the city when their conditions are not right could create a problem in that sense. A vicious cycle is created. Many economies in Central America and much of the developing world are based on agriculture. These goods can be susceptible to environmental pressures due to climate change, and when the production of these goods are disrupted, then entire livelihoods are at stake. So, people move. But because migration can be unpredictable and at times done en masse, the movement from one ecosystem to another can bring its own kinds of devastation, thus continuing the deterioration of our planet. Now, on a day-to-day -day basis, regardless of where you are in the world, you have a connection to some agricultural economy, whether that's from a market that sources locally produced goods or from an international seller. We all need to eat, and so we have a stake in the agricultural market in ways that are arguably more proximate than in other areas. Why then is the impetus to properly address these agricultural issues seemingly absent? 
or rather is the intention there but the execution just done poorly just because policy in some cases has not been effective in addressing the causes of migration does not mean that good policy cannot be devised there needs to be however a plan that is at once global in its immediacy but local in its approach by centering the lives of the migrants we can better understand their conditions and their aspirations this requires a rethinking of our international framework to force migration there is a global problem that has to do with the climate change related to emissions and those emissions are heavily concentrated in certain countries while the consequences are heavily concentrated in a different number of countries a small island state is a classical example they don't have a lot to say in the in the in the global agreements and at the same time they are going to be disproportionately affected in terms of sea level rise there is a lot of attention to the to the global arena particularly in terms of the cops and i think those agreements are necessary and i also agree completely with the similar but differentiated uh, responsibility emissions are important and because and, and on, they are not only an issue of developed and developing countries you also have the issue of who within each of the countries are the the, the one responsible for this so I, I think that the global arena is necessary. I also think that the work that the UN C is doing is, is necessary. I am skeptical about what the level of commitment, because these are not being the binding agreement and you're going to bring it back. So we have the Paris agreement and it was great. And then we're still seeing what the, what the issue is there. There's much said about people having the right to migrate, but migration scholars also note that people should also have the right not to migrate. Dr. Bermeo discusses this distinction while noting the inadequacy of the current legalistic approach towards forced migration. So we typically think of forced migration as related to violence or political repression or something along those lines, which would normally be covered under international definitions of refugees. And international definitions of refugees don't cover people who are fleeing solely for climate-related reasons. But they are still, in some cases, definitely a, a form of forced migration in the sense that remaining where they are and being able to survive is no longer an option, either because they are subject to extreme risks from climate-related events or because um, they are reliant on land for their livelihoods and that, or fisheries for their livelihoods and that that is no longer a tenable position and there is no other form of livelihood where they are and so they need to move. And so this idea of the, the right not to migrate suggests that um, it tries to take away the idea that migration is inherently a bad thing or something that we should try to discourage but also in, incorporate the idea that migration should be a choice, not something that people feel forced to do for their very survival, whether that is due to climate or due to violence or due to any other factor that might force people to migrate. So I suppose the point is that while these international fora are necessary, it is not always obvious how they translate into concrete action on the ground. What is the disconnect here between developed and developing countries? If you go in and you dictate what people, quote, should be doing, they're less likely to actually be able to pick it up and do it. But if you work with them as partners the whole way, um, they're going to come up with the solutions. And so just being able to give farmers the knowledge that already exists so that they can make intelligent decisions for their own livelihoods informed by facts 
has had a huge impact where these where these trials have been carried out in terms of um, increasing crop yields, food security, ability to with, withstand droughts without needing to move. And being able to scale this would have a huge impact both on food security and then the follow-on impact on migration patterns. So you have in Senegal the, the erosion of the coast and villages that have to move inland because they can no longer live by the coast. And not because it's the continuous sea level rise, it's because sea level rise is manifesting as erosion of the coast, and that is heavily affecting these villages that live by the sea. So I think that's what I mean in terms of local, not leave the global out. That has to be there because it's a global problem. But the communities affected are local and they need to be at the table as well in terms of policy, policy making. Because if not, we, we and, and the same with the migration. I don't know if calling this course about massive migration, but the massive migration for a, an island or a country as Tuvalu of less than 50,000 people, that's not a massive migration in the Western time, if you want, but it's the whole country. As was noted earlier, various causes of migration are interlinked with one another. And so while it may be difficult to tackle some of these causes, others can more effectively and easily be addressed. Foreign aid and development projects need to help in smart ways. This can be done by empowering people locally, by making use of their knowledge in combination with providing global technical assistance. For instance, if I'm thinking of two causes of migration in Central America, there's more than two, but let's, if we said two, um, violence is really difficult to tackle. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be tackled, but it's really difficult to tackle. Agriculture is politically much easier. And so if I'm worried about, you know, how do you get the biggest impact to improve people's livelihoods in the shortest amount of time? I think focusing on agriculture so people feel that they can produce for their families where they are so they don't have to move into unsafe situations would actually be, you know, could be hugely beneficial, um, both in allowing people to stay where, where they are if they choose to do so. And from, you know, the point of view of the U.S. and Mexico and others who are worried about the number of migrants would likely have a relatively quick impact on migration patterns. Because a lot of why people are moving is because they lack hope. If your crops have failed for three years in a row, you don't necessarily want to stick around for the fourth year. But I think what we're seeing, I mean, migration costs money. And I think what we're seeing after families lose a couple of crops is they're depleting their resources and they get to a situation of now or never when it comes to migration. And so providing some semblance of hope that that there is a better plan and that things will get better in the rural areas, I think would go a long way. But it is going to require working directly with smallholder farmers. And that is something that foreign aid just doesn't usually do. Alongside this more collaborative effort, what else can donor countries in the developed world do to tackle the effects of climate change in developing countries? Have international agreements been helpful? If aid donor countries are serious about tackling the climate crisis globally and within developing countries, there needs to be, just from a sheer practical standpoint, larger investment in both mitigation and adaptation. Everybody is showing that there's not enough money overall. Um, what we see in particular when it comes to adaptation, though, there's a report that is put out called the Adaptation Gap Report. Um, and the 2022 report showed that the current funding for adaptation 
is somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10 times below where it needs to be for the current needs, and that these needs will grow to around $300 billion per year by 2030, which is more than is currently pledged for climate aid overall, let alone just adaptation. And this is something that you will see becomes a very strong contentious point between um, developing and um, donor countries in international negotiations is a split between adaptation and mitigation. But if you look at what happened with loss and damage, um, that part, that's different. There is just now certain agreement that, yes, you need to have a climate fund, but there's still no agreement on how exactly that climate fund is going to be established. So that is the global arena that goes to a sustainable development goal. I think it is 17 or 13 agreement and work on the climate. What I meant in terms of the, of the local is that the impacts, even when affect a whole country and affect the globe, what you have is that our local population that, want, that are affected. So you don't have the whole United States affected by the hurricane. You have certain parts affected by the hurricanes and affected in different ways. So you don't have the whole United States or the whole world affected because of the taming of the permafrost. And those that are more affected are indigenous villages in Alaska. So that's what I mean in terms of the impacts. And that needs to be incorporated in the discussion. Those underlying causes of political corruption, lack of good institutions within the countries, um, but also violence and, and drug, drug cartels operating with impunity um, through the region are, are also huge factors. And they're much more difficult to deal with, um, with foreign aid. Climate adaptation is what foreign aid could do. Foreign aid has very good track records in, in, you know, in coming up with agricultural solutions and in coming up with health solutions. Um, these are areas where foreign aid has track records of success. You know, stopping drug or uh, drug smuggling and stopping gun running across borders. These are not areas where foreign aid is going to help. And so it really, you know, it really takes some thought about what is the role of foreign aid in tackling these root causes. What is the role of other forms of diplomacy or um, foreign policy that it can't just be relied on aid? You can't just throw money at every problem and, and, and fix it. And so what is the appropriate role for aid? Where can it actually help? Um, and then reformulating the way that the U.S. thinks about foreign aid, again, to work directly with local partners, which is something that U.S. foreign aid does not do very well. They would prefer to work through contractors and through intermediaries. Um, rather than work directly with local populations. But the local populations are on the front line of this. The relationship between the developed and the developing world is such that solutions in developing countries can ultimately come to benefit those in developed countries as well. There is a win-win scenario. In fact, there might be multiple. Although the world may be divided between developed and developing, and such a division theoretically can help us to uncover levels of vulnerability, at the end of the day, it is one shared planet, and policies may often not reflect that reality. How have American administrations worked to deal with climate-induced migration? It's very interesting because I think there was a shift from the Trump administration to the Biden administration in focusing on climate change as a cause for migration. 
I think in the Trump this no, so now I'm speaking from personal opinion or personal expert opinion, if you would like, but from the magnitude of what we are seeing of the different causes, I, w- I would say that the Trump administration underestimated the impact of climate and the Biden administration overemphasizes the impact of climate. You know, when I think about the idea of targeted development of richer countries picking and choosing where they're going to really invest their development resources because they're concerned about the impact of underdevelopment abroad on themselves at home. So migration is is obviously one of the the key areas. People talk about trade and and others or just even security border spillover effects, things like that. Um, It does make sense that from that perspective, the United States would be investing a lot in development in Central America. And in fact, you hear as a rationale for um, not just foreign aid, if you go back to the Bush Jr. administration, um, talking about when they wanted to get CAFTA passed, it was George W. Bush actually said CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, is, is migration policy. If we make things better there, people won't come here. And we're hearing the same as a justification for foreign aid strategies. Um, and it was actually a decent amount of bipartisan support in the United States. I think that that is actually something that is important to remember. I was I was speaking um, to to the BBC at one point when President Trump was in office about the U.S. foreign aid budget, and I was asked, "Are you concerned about the you know that the administration will significantly be able to cut foreign aid to the levels that they suggested?" And I said, "No, I'm not, because even Lindsey Graham doesn't support them. There's really strong bipartisan within the Congress support for." This idea that we can use foreign aid to make things better other places in a way that also can help the United States. Uh, That said, it doesn't mean that we're good at it. In this episode, we've examined the instances of climate-induced migration so that we can begin to think of ways in which effective policy can be devised to help those who have been on the move, are on the move currently, and will perhaps be on the move in the future. And while this episode has focused primarily on migration from Central America to the United States, climate-induced migration affects nations across the globe, and this includes in developed countries as well. The forced movement of people implicates us all. Although more complicated than what might be observed at first glance, there is a clear connection between climate change and migration. And this problem, unless addressed at its root, will continue to sprawl. In 2022, the United Nations International Organization for Migration offered estimates of nearly 1 billion environmental migrants over the next few decades. 1 billion. Such a large number is truly difficult to understand, but we are seeing this displacement play out now. This isn't an abstract idea. And while migration has been at the heart of the human experience forever, our global system of assisting people that are displaced by climactic changes and environmental catastrophe needs updating. There's a chance here for the international community to be creative in its approach by centering the lives of the displaced and by working locally to find long-term solutions. The forced movement of people and the way climate change can act as a multiplier to worsen deteriorating circumstances also increases insecurity from a global level. In the next episode of Climate Change, America and the World, we'll delve further into how climate change is connected to security concerns. We'll consider what it means to be secure and how instability and violence 
can be furthered by climate activity. This episode was produced by the LSE Failing U.S. Center by Mohad Malik, Anderson Tan, and Chris Gilson. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the second episode of this climate change series. Please feel free to rate and review this episode on your platform of choice. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'll see you next time.